full Val moment. I like Laird Hamilton, Bethany. <laughs> I think I want to like Kelly Slater. <laughs> Continuing our unintentional string of episodes with surf riders, I bring to you a conversation with Derek Riley. Classifying Derek as a surf rider isn't quite fair, actually. His talents and contributions to surf media are a fair bit more robust. But that said, his riding style does kind of succinctly synthesize the style of his contributions. And if I made an argument last week that Drew Campion could be credited with shepherding surf culture's presentation from a conservative sport of kings into a lackadaisical Spicoli counterculture stereotype, then Derek Riley could be credited with influencing and giving voice to a subculture of surfers who definitely still like to party, but also have intellectual curiosity beyond surfing, a keen eye for aesthetic, and a modicum of vanity. His list of employers include Australian Surfing Life, Surf Europe, Waves, along with publishing articles in Surfer, Tracks, Surfer's Journal, and Penthouse Magazine. Riley co-founded Stab Magazine in 2004 alongside Sam McIntosh, and then Beach Grid in 2014 alongside Chas Smith. In late 2017, he published Wednesdays with Bob, a book about Australia's 23rd Prime Minister. And just last month, he published his second book, Golpalil, about indigenous Australian dancer and actor David Golpalil. Prior to any of that, however, Riley developed his own interests and aesthetic as a blackjack dealer, a bartender, and later a boat captain, a story that he shares here in this episode. And now I'm quoting from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. Quote, acknowledging that his two greatest literary influences were Mad Magazine and National Lampoon, Riley often put his cheerful and profanity-laced writing style to use in short bursts of schoolboy comedy. But Riley also wrote long, well-crafted articles on subjects like the elitism of surf resorts and how surf competitions forced local wave riders out of the water. In 2010, when asked what he liked about surfing, Riley answered, the feeling of power and arrogance and sexy. And when he was asked what he didn't like, he said that everybody feels the need to talk about it so much, end quote. And none of this actually could have been possible today without the support of Visla. You know Visla for their clothing, their surf films, and importantly for them supporting shapers, laminators, and artists. Their Seven Seas wetsuit was also featured in Beach Grit's new film, Once Upon a Time in New Zealand. Each step of Visla's wetsuit production has been re-engineered to create less environmental impact, from upcycled materials in the knee pads to using limestone-based neoprene and rubber from recycled car tires to a yarn dyeing process that saves water and reduces energy consumption. Visla's wetsuits and much of their clothing line actually not only look, feel, and wear great, but they also represent meaningful steps towards a more sustainable model for living and consumption. Support them through visla.com and through your local retailer. They've done a great job partnering with retailers in most places that have been around the world, so you should be able to find them in your local. Thank you to Visla for supporting today's show. And without further ado, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Derek Wright.
you doing in the US? Uh, I'm doing a little uh, little job up in San Francisco, interviewing Metallica. For Beach Grit? Expanding into music content? No, just, oh. it was actually a side gig. Oh, is but it? But it was fun. Had a lot of, had a lot of fun, though. Interesting men. Are they? Yeah, so really. So you spend one-on-one time with them? Yeah, I had about... Um, we had to wait about an hour or an hour and a half to see them, and um, some other stuff was happening, and then James is coming, hung out with us for a while. So that was pretty cool. And then um, had about an hour and a half with the band, just chatting. Interesting. Yeah, good guys. Um, Kirk's a piece of gold, because you know he surfs, right? Yeah, Yeah, so, right. so he surfs and lives in uh, Honolulu, and uh, he had some very funny stories. Did he have any awareness of Beach Grid or you or what you do? Um, I'm, I'm sure he, did, but he didn't express those sentiments. No. <laughs> Would that feel validating if he did? No. Nah. Really? No. Nah. You don't care? I don't, I, you know, I don't um, identify myself as a surf journalist or surfer or any of those sorts of things. Just something I do like to do. And, and I love writing about it. And I love the whole thing. I love it. I love pretty much everything about surfing. But I certainly don't feel validated if someone, you know, would if Kirk Hammond knew who I was or something, you know. How do you identify? Um, I identify as, I don't identify as a writer. Um, I just identify as a, as a kid from the suburbs who's just, in my, in my view, I just feel like I've accidentally overachieved. I mean, very, very lucky. And I just feel like the gods have smiled on me my whole life. So everything that happens to me just feels like a, um, yeah, gift from the heavens. I think that's a good posture to maintain. Like it'll always make you feel happy and gratitude. Yeah, and that everything that's happened. Like I did a, a this through a bizarre set of circumstances, I ended up doing a book with uh, Australia's greatest prime minister. It was like doing, you know, Charles de Gaulle or John F. Kennedy or something. And then a year later, he was dead. So I became suddenly this expert on this prime minister. And I went to his uh, memorial at the Sydney Opera House. And I'm in the in the foyer, the, the national broadcaster interviewing me, this kid from the suburbs, as the as the expert on this um, on this great prime minister. And then I was at the after party afterwards. There's only about a hundred people there. I looked around. There's ex prime minister, ex prime minister, ex prime minister, ambassadors, and whatever. And there's me. Wild. Yeah. So everything that I have uh, had happened to me. I feel very, very lucky, David. Uh, so I'm sure there's lots of luck involved, uh, but you got to deliver on the goods and you have to have talent and all that sort of stuff. So what do, what would make you feel validated? Like if somebody, maybe not an interview with Metallica, but something like that, you spent a year or two with him on, what was it, Wednesdays? Yep. Wednesdays with Bob? Yeah, Wednesdays with okay. Bob, yeah. So you're spending a tremendous amount of time putting a bunch of effort into it. How could it not feel validating if uh, after it gets published, somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, man, really appreciated that. I guess, I guess so. But I guess validation feels like it's something that you need to, because for something to be valid, it's like invalid until that happens. And I never felt invalid. Gotcha. You know, because I always felt happy and healthy. And and um, and I'm certainly not, I wouldn't call myself uh, an eternal optimist, but I feel like if I wake up in the morning and the, and the sky is, in, is, in, is in, there isn't a nuclear cloud above me and I'm breathing and I can get out of bed. I feel so happy and so lucky. It's like get up and I make my bed and yeah. you know, so everything that, everything that happens validates me and I, I don't really need any validation from anyone, but the fact that you get television stations calling you and radio stations calling wanting to do stuff all the time, it's a good feeling, mm-hmm. but I, but I wouldn't call it validation. No. And my, and my new book is with a um, famous Australian actor who's indigenous and, um, and part, as part of that book, I had to interview all these great Australian actors. So it was great. So I went from one side, all the politicians, and now every other icon of my life. So I went on the political side, and now the arts. And um, so it's been a very sort of fun ride, but yeah. Did that become available to you because of your, the success of Wednesdays with Bob? Yeah. So it's a Hawk was a triple bestseller. So I sold nearly 30,000 copies, which in Australia is a lot. You know, it's pretty awesome. much one for every everyone's uncle and dad and brother, you know. 
And uh, so, so I got this one, and uh, and this is going to be interesting because the the actors got David Galpalil, and he's an Aboriginal, full blooded Aboriginal man, who didn't see a white person until he was eight, and he was scouted by a British director in 1969 to star in this film called Walkabout, which ended up being a, a one of the hundred greatest films of all time, according to the Guardian, okay. and he uh, couldn't speak English, and he actually spears kangaroos in the film, and holy, cow. and then he suddenly went from this tribal existence to seeing the Queen of England, having red carpet out for him, and you know the legend was that he speared one of the ducks in a in the lake, and because he was hungry, you know, and he no and he met way. Bruce Lee, and he met John Lennon and Bob Marley, and and he worked with Dennis Hopper in a movie. And at one point, um, he got so freaked out by Dennis, he was just trying to drink himself to death. Like at one point, the director found Dennis drinking Old Spice, that um, David went off into the bush. Walk, it's called Walkabout, when Aboriginals go off in the bush, and the, in the middle of the shoot, and they had to get Aboriginal trackers in to find him. And they got him, they said, you know, what were you doing? He's going to, I had to ask the birds and the, and the trees um, what, was, what was up with uh, fucking Dennis. Holy and the director said, um, what'd they say? He said, he's crazy. <laughs> that is wild, mm. dude. Um, what do you attribute that posture to that you maintain about like kind of just you naturally wake up in the morning and feel gratitude for the position that you're in? Yeah, but not in a, not in a soppy kind of um, WSL Eric Logan kind of way. No, but is it, are you working to maintain that posture or is it encoded in your DNA? And if it is, where does it come from? Uh, my mum, my mum was always very um, upbeat and, and optimistic, but also a pragmatist. <clears throat> and I think that's the, you know, the position you have to have, you have to be pragmatic. You have to realize that, you know, cancer or sudden death or, or death of your loved ones, all those things can be just around the corner. So this moment is the greatest moment because none, none, none of those things hopefully have happened. So I always say, you know, you know, people go, I'm sad about this, sad about this. Someone wrote a nasty word about me on Twitter or something. So fuck, do you have cancer? You know, is everyone alive? You know, is the, are you breathing oxygen? You know, are you happy? You know, they're, they're the things that really matter. You say you have to have those things, but most people don't, dude. Most people live their life very differently than that. Or certainly in the society that I live in, where we're like sitting on the freeway for an hour every day, each direction, and everybody's in debt trying to just maintain some a livable lifestyle, you know, to own a home and stuff like that. Most people don't. Yeah, but, have yeah, but you know, I have, everyone has their own struggles, you know, and it's funny because another job I did was with a, um, you know, a billionaire, Australian billionaire, as a ghost written private job. But it's funny, you get to see all these people in all their different lives and no one's life really is that superior. The richest person's, I mean, I guess living on the streets of San Francisco is pretty fucked, but, but the very basic things, you know, fresh air, good food, all those things, and enjoying moments. Like even in commute, you can be learning languages and listening to the most compelling New Yorker broadcast, you know. So it isn't, doesn't have to be a bummer. You know, everything can be pretty cool. You know, unless, you, you know, if you're in prison or something, it's not so cool. But Even then, you could yeah. write a book in prison or do well, something yeah, yeah. meaningful. Yeah, friend, friend of, a really good Get friend of mine's in, um, in prison and, uh, yeah, it's not that easy because you spend half your time trying to not get um, stabbed to death and the, and a lot of the time, unless you're a long-term inmate, they won't let you do um, university programs. Okay. And so I thought I thought it's the same thing too. I'll just go there, write some books and write some songs and do an album. <laughs> get fit. <laughs> yeah, get fit, yeah. Um, so who was your mom? You said your mom instilled that in you. What, what did she do and – yeah, my mum was just a, uh, she'd always worked in, um, in, you know, various roles, kind of, you know, administrative kind of roles as, as mum sort of do. But one of those great mums who, like, she'd pick me up from um, from school and we'd sing the whole way home and, you know, we'd just hang out together and we'd just sing and everything was everything was great. and But but not great in, in, a, in an airy-fairy kind of way, just in a pragmatic thing, just enjoying moments together. Well, 
single mom or no 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 my, my parents are still married my, oh, wow. my dad was an, my dad's an intellectual total academic oh really you know so it was great so my dad just sit us down at the kitchen table and, and we just talked about politics yeah and he didn't push any of his biases onto us he just said they're all pack of bastards you know and uh and it was explained past the poll voting and preferential voting all these different systems and you know capitalism communism all those things he explained to us and and uh, so I was, I was very fortunate like that interesting so uh, the detail like you kind of feeling optimistic and all that sort of stuff and saying like there's no even the billionaires have their own plight you know and everybody in between the one detail that i've isolated and I could be wrong and I'm always reassessing it is just feeling loved by your parents. Like if your parents both provide you kind of unconditional love and support and you can pick your path through life, knowing that you have that, I think then you end up okay. And you're generally happy and well adjusted. And it's the kids who um, have that as a deficit that end up, you know, ruining relationships and uh, even, you know, school shootings and stuff can kind of be tracked back to mommy and daddy didn't love me enough. I think I think a lot of that is society. I think if your parents put a roof over your head, they didn't bash you or fuck you, then they've done a good job. Honestly, those are the basics. Yeah, you know, you That's don't you, you don't need. have to be hugged every go. I love you, little man. No, completely. You know? That that actually can then become yeah problematic. So, so I think the, the problem has been too much self reflection. I think people have too much idle time, dude. Totally. You know, you, you know, and it's it's bizarre. And the funny thing I noticed in America too is the um, normalization of um, obesity. You know, watching MTV clips. The people who are obese dancing, whatever, and that's it's great, whatever. But it's it's made to seem as if it's normal because it, it's a problem, you know. Obesity is a problem. Not only is it normal, you're not even allowed to criticize uh, somebody with an obese body because that's a hate crime. Yeah, yeah. Like and, 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 and I don't think, and I don't think we should be you know yelling at fat people, but uh, I don't think we should be celebrating obesity either. Right. You know. So that is unique to America. You guys don't have that in Australia. We do have it, but not quite the same level. I mean, Australia is 20 years behind America. Okay. It's funny, um, governmentally wise, we were, we were very much like Europe and then we were kind of slowly migrating out of the American model. And it's funny, I go to France and they're like Australia in the seventies, have a really regulated labor market. You can't, you can't sack anyone. So no one gets hired and, and wages are low and all those sorts of things. But there's a broad middle class and Australia had that, but now it's kind of the middle class is shrinking and then you get the, you know, like you were saying with the, uh, you know, rich people and, a lot of poor people. Um, do you think that, how do you feel about gravitating towards an American model? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, there's great things about America and, 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 it's, and it's the saddest thing about America is this, the splintering of all the, all the identity groups and, and people not identifying as Americans first and foremost, you know, because, right. because you have more immigrants in your country than any other country in the world and yet it's held up to be the most racist hellhole on earth, which is bizarre. And anti-immigration. Yeah, and anti-immigration, which is bizarre. No one pulls the Japanese up. No one pulls the Chinese up. No one pulls the, no one pulls the fucking Nigerians up and the Somalians up. But it's the British and it's the French and it's the Americans and the Australians who get thrown under the bus and we're all doing the best we can. And we're, we're if everyone, I think it works, if everyone comes and shares the same common story. You know, if I, if I wanted to migrate to France, I would think and become a citizen. Well, France is my country now. Yeah. And, and I think that that works. But if I think when people come there and go, well, I'm proud to be, uh-uh-uh, and you know and that's my country, that's my flag. But I'm living in this country and and, and using it as an economic kind of base. Yep. I don't think that's very cool. No, I agree. Um, I asked you how you identified earlier, and let me ask a different version of it: is like if somebody asks you what you do for work, 
Not yeah. that anybody ever asks that. <laughs> we always use that example. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're at a cocktail party and oh, somebody no, says, I get, what it, do you I get it a bit. They okay. Go, they go, people go, what do you do? And, um, and I said, oh, you know, I sort of, I sort of write. And then what have you done? And it's good now I've got the books because right. that's like something they can relate to. Because when I said, when I, because I hate saying, I have a surfing website because it feels like it's like a hobby thing, you know, it's just a couple of long boards and this really badly made website. Yeah. You know, I want to say, fuck, this is a website that had 100,000 unique hits the other day. Yeah. You know, Chaz's story from the other day had 375,000 reads. Which story was that? It was a great white story of Cape Cod. Of course it is. Yeah. Like a shark story yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to get the most. But can you believe that? 100,000 no, hits in one day. You know, we generally get sort of 30-ish, whatever, but 100,000 spike, that's, that's traffic of 3 million a, you know, a month, which is biggest in surfing. Yeah. So when you, people say, what are you doing? You do a surf website. It sounds lame. But if they, only they knew, David. <laughs> Imagine what they feel <laughs> when you tell them you're a podcaster. <laughs> okay. Oh, but podcasting is pretty, pretty, pretty hip now. So you tell them that you're a writer is, yeah, what, yeah. is how you identify. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean like the vast majority of the surf world who knows you knows you strictly from yeah. writing. But I, but I wouldn't, I don't, I don't say writer cause that sounds like I'm, you know, sitting there in my garret writing poetry. I just say, oh yeah, I write. I got a couple of books. And so here's, I'll give you my perspective of you and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Um, you don't write enough. Like I would, I always thoroughly enjoy what you write and it's among my favorite things. And I, I've always liked Chaz in the past, but now I'm oversaturated with Chaz. So when it comes to beach grit and I see an, a name on the, the author's name on the article, I'm eager to see yours cause I don't get enough, but I actually wouldn't necessarily identify you as a writer knowing your history with stab. And now with beach grit is like, I think of you as more of a creative director. Like it's your, what matters most to me is your imprint on the thing. You know, yeah, your thumbprint. Yeah. That's, that's definitely why I see my role. With magazines, I really enjoyed editing. And I, and I love the process of interviewing people, but I love having an overall picture. But everything from, from the fonts to the subheads, yeah, exactly. to every single thing, it has to, be, has to be absolutely perfect, which can be a problem with people who have to work with me because I have a picture in my head if they do something and it's just totally wrong, because my influences can't be from anything within that circle, so I have to find my I have to find really obscure influences and through my own prism. Yeah, you know, like there's a um, there's a great graphic designer, Swiss ed American born, Swiss educated graphic designer from the '60s. I won't say who she is because you'll see where all my influences come from. But she, um, oh, I'll tell you in a sec. But uh, she did the graphics for Surf Ranch, the not Surf Ranch, uh, Sea Ranch up in San Francisco. I don't know. It. Up in San Francisco, there's this um, playing community in the, I think it's in the 60s, and this on this big bluff overlooking the water in okay. Northern California somewhere near San Francisco. And that's where I heard about her. And she did this beautiful logo, and she created this thing called um, Super Graphics. And so, um, so she's become a, um, a big influence of mine. But I like to assemble a, a community of people. There'll be one graphic artist I like to use. There'll be one music person I want to use. There'll be one photographer I want to use. You know, and I get all these people and I feel like I can put, put them all through my prism and create something, something cool, mm -hmm. you know. And I think um, sometimes you, you have synergies with people, like people with bands, you know, you have those particular guys made the Rolling Stones, but by themselves they're shit. So with, um, so with Sam McIntosh, he really worked with Stab because he, I used to do the magazine and he'd do the, the big things, you know, he'd be spending the whole day looking through, looking through shit, trying to find stuff. And I'd make the magazine from start to scratch, edit everything, do everything while he was doing those big things. So we had these two really cool things happening. You would have the, you know, the, like a wave pool shoot or something and I'd be creating the magazine and we'd do it all together. It was, it was great. And then, uh, you know, Chaz and we have, we have such a great synergy as well. 
So I'm really lucky that I've had Stab, which is really fun, to start that from scratch and then to start um, Bitch Creek with Chaz. How did, how did you meet Sam and why start a magazine with him? Um, I, think, I think Sam liked my stuff at Surfing Life and then he came and visited me when I was living in France. What was his relationship to you? Was he writing at the time? Uh, or like- I, can't, I think he might have just started at Waves. As a writer? As a writer, yeah. Okay. But he didn't have a writing background or anything. But he's, he's a clever guy and he, uh, he, could, he could definitely turn a phrase. And I, I remember reading something he wrote on a surf trip and I, and I felt like if he just had a, a good editor on his stuff, he could be, his stuff would be really good. So, um, so I used to like his words. And then- uh, He came visited you in France. Yeah, he came and visited me in France. And I never, I never remembered it, but he- um, Were you living in France? Or? Yeah, I lived there for two years. I started a magazine over there called Surf Europe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, and then um, I came back to Australia in two, end of 2000. And, um, and I was just sort of kicking around and it was great. I was getting a retainer from Surf Europe just to edit their stuff. And I just had this great <laughs> job at a men's interest magazine, which I hated, but the money was amazing. Had a big office in the city and two assistants and a parking spot and all that sort of stuff. And then um, Sam asked if I would come and work at Waves. And uh, I just needed, needed a hobby job to keep me off the streets sort of thing. So I just went in there and, and um, worked with him there. And then he had, a, he had a bit of a falling out with the publisher at the time. So he got put into marketing get taken off the mag and then um, then they asked me to edit waves. I didn't want to edit waves. So I just said, no, nah, I just want to keep writing stuff. And that's when Ronnie came in, Ronnie Blakey, and he and he did that. And then uh, me and Sam had been talking about doing a men's magazine because at the time Loaded and Maxim and all those magazines had just really started to explode about 2001. And, um, and then I realised that it had to be surfing because that's what we knew. And to do a men's mag was just going to be out of our sort of field of reference. And then um, another friend of ours said, um, you should ask Billabong, should pr- send a prop to Billabong to do a book on their, um, what anniversary, 30th anniversary, I guess yeah. it was, yeah, for 2003. So he put together this, um, this prop and um, if we pulled it off, we're going to get a quarter of a million dollars net profit, you know, for a couple of months' work. Holy cow. So they said yes. And it was, it was a compelling sell to them too because they could get all these books. I think they got 20,000 books or something. And it was going to be net profit for them. So it was good for them too. And um, so they said yes. And Sam was still working at that stage. I'd quit Waves. And uh, I just did the book by myself. So I, I filled it at all. We had a big budget. So I got Evan Slater to write stuff, Tim Baker to write stuff, everyone I knew. I said, but I need the, I need the story, you know, in a week sort of thing. So uh, I had all these things in. And we got this incredible design company to do the, uh, do the graphic design. And it, had, it was beautiful. It had this sort of fold-over inside cover with shaped like a wave with a DVD with all of Jack McCoy's films on it, I think. And wow. it was a beautiful book. And that gave us the money to start Stab. And, um, and yeah, and that's, uh, that's how Step started. Fascinating. And it filled a really unique, I mean, I didn't even know that that void was missing in the surf world when Stab came in and it just uh, absolutely like added so much color and richness to the space. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had, we had some, you know, pretty good ideas and, I always felt that magazines should revolve around one kind of cover story. You know, other magazines feel like, you know, I got to have these little funny bits at the start and a little cartoon there and this, this and the letters and everything. And it just felt so tired and, um, and not that we were breaking new ground or anything. I mean, initially um, I remember we were going to Rusty to try and sell on some ads and they said, what are you? And I said, we're going, we're kind of the vanity fair of surf mags. And that was the initial thing. And then I I can't remember, um, I think it was Mogger from uh, Rusty said, no, no. Yeah. He goes, yeah, you guys are like the, the fashion-y kind of cool guys and da-da-da. And I kind of went, oh, yes, <laughs> guess, guess we are. That's <laughs> and that kind of shaped it a bit. How long was your run with Stab? Um, so we started in 2003, July 2000, August 2003. The first issue came out February 2004, I think, or January 2004. 
and I was there until 2014. But I, I, um, I sold my shares, I think, 2008, 2009, because I had half of it. And we'd foolishly given 10% to this guy who was going to be a business manager and he didn't do shit and, and I was kind of over it by then. And then uh, and I felt like we're just going to piss all the money away anyway. And, um, but then I, and then I left for a bit. So in 2009, you sold because of those things? You felt like it had been mismanaged and you kind of wanted a... Uh, yeah, mis- not, not mismanaged on anyone else's part, my own part as well, you know. I just, and also I felt like um, me and Sam at the time were in different places in our lives. I, was, I had a family and, and a wife and Sam didn't, so he could enjoy the fruits of the company credit card more than me. And also and, work probably longer hours and all that sort well, of stuff. But I'm, I'm, not a, um, I'm not a believer in sitting at a desk for 20 hours and saying I'm a hard worker when I can go in there for six hours and do twice as much, you know. But um, we're just in different places and um, neither, I don't think, neither, neither of us were wrong. And uh, we're just, yeah, different places and it just felt like time that, needed to get out and then I left and I was going to do a uh, magazine for a, uh, a jeans company called Subi. I was going to do a magazine called Sex and Fashion. So that's my little kind of exit thing. And then they were going through this turmoil and that was kind of going, oh, next month, next month, next month. And then Sam was having problems trying to fill the editor, th- editor thing at uh, Stab. But Sorry to interrupt. Who'd you sell your shares to? Did uh, Stab or to, Sam to, take to full Sam and, and this other guy, a guy called uh, Harry Truscott. He and that guy... Globe. But he maintained ten percent, or he took more. I think ownership. I think he ended up. Uh, he must have ended up with twenty or twenty percent or something. I'm not so really, Sam's I'm, majority owner. Yeah, yeah, majority owner. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And then, um, and then later on, another guy came in, Tom Bird, who was a gun salesman, and he was the turning point for the commerciality of the business. Okay, and and it was it was totally Sam's doing. He went and found Tom. I think Tom was working at the Sydney Morning Herald, and found him. And um, yeah, gun salesman, really driven. The, you know, the perfect salesman. You know, he was like uh, Ari Gold kind of guy, and. Um, but, you know, lovely man and charismatic and perfect guy for sales. So that made Stab way more of a commercial enterprise. And then uh, so I started working there until 2000. Thing. And then in, in between all that, I had a water taxi business. So I thought it'd be really cool to drive water taxis. Yeah, so you're actually the driver? You're not just the business? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Well, I, so I bought this shit boat. Oh, my gosh. And um, yeah. so I didn't know all those classic things about boats that, you know, everything costs $1,000 to fucking whatever. So I, so I got this boat. It was a wreck, but it had a new engine in it, right? It's, and it's commercial boats. Commercial boats are expensive. So I drove it down. With the, I got this skipper guy. We drove it down from Sydney. And I'd driven down from the Gold Coast that night because I'd been on the Gold Coast. Driven all night. It was, and I'd been out with Sam at North Bondi Italian getting boozed. Pulled up at this little harbour where the boat was and the, and the skipper had loaded up all these barrels of uh, diesel and whatever. And I had my little bag of cheese and a wetsuit because I had to swim for it. And, um, and then we left at midnight and we got out of the heads and it was a hundred and something nautical miles to this um, place called Ulladulla where the uh, yep. boat yard was. And you'd pick this perfect night. It was about a two-knot nor'easter, zero swell, beautiful night. Got out of the heads and the, uh, and the skipper guy just goes, uh, mate, just point it down towards those lights and wake me up in four hours. And I'd, I'd never been out. I mean, I've been on boats plenty of times. So I've never been the, the master of the vessel. And I started hallucinating. I was, I was looking at um, tankers in the distance and, um, and seeing people dancing and weird shit. Wow. And then after uh, four hours, I just woke up and I said, oh. And we, we had to do four knots because we didn't know if this boat was going to sink. And as it turned out, it had a hole in it. It had holes everywhere. And we're plugging it with cheese and, oh my and all gosh, sorts of shit. Dude. But we made it. Miraculously, we made it. And um, so we put it in Aladala or whatever. And then uh, I, got the, I got the train back to Sydney and it was there for a year, the boat. And I remember that. And I remember having a twenty grand budget in my head to fit it out. And I remember the first time I went down there, nothing had been done. I got it had a bit, a bit of sanding, or whatever bits pulled off it, seven grand. So a hundred grand later that I spent on it, I had this boat it looked amazing. 
had these cool graphics on it and beautiful boat. It was so cool that Angelina Jolly hired it for a whole month while she was in Sydney on a film just because of all the graphics on it because it looked really cool. No way. Oh, yeah. And then, um, but just the classic thing where um, I didn't know anything about boats. I didn't have my, um, my ticket to be the, um, to the main driver. And the company that I d- just do my training through, they went broke, so I lost all my money there. And everything was, everything would go, could possibly go wrong would go wrong. I was getting ripped off left, right, and center. So in the end, it was one of those sink cost kind of things. And I thought, fuck, I've spent enough. And then I thought, I know surfing. I'm going to go back. I'm going to cut myself off a little bit of real estate. At this time, I was still doing STAB. And so I thought, okay, well, what can I do? What can be my real estate? And then I thought, I'm just going to do an extension of STAB. It's just going to be a bit, bit more cultural, a bit you know, edgy, a bit more fun again. And I'm going to have Chaz. I'm going to have a hell time. And, and that was the founding of Beach Grip. Yeah, and I thought, what are we going to call it? I thought, can't call it surf. It's, it's got to be beach. And I thought, what's well, kind of cool beach, uh, beach grit, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Do you feel like you executed that original goal? Yeah. You do? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's exactly what I thought it would be too. You know, and when the logo came back from my designer pal, it just looked incredible. You know, it was like, I hadn't seen anything like it before. And, and then uh, I think I spent about six or nine grand or something in this company in Poland doing the, doing the, design, uh, doing the uh, back-end stuff. And then, uh, yeah. And it, yes, it hasn't exceeded my expectations. It's my expectations are pretty on point, but because it's hard, for us, it's our it's our big thing. You know, it's going to see us into for out for a while. I think. What? Uh, where have you um, fallen short of your ambitions with it? No, I haven't. Because <laughs> we've got so many. You know, that's I guess that sounds egotistical, but I don't really have. I have expectations, and everything I do, I try to do the best of our ability, and I like to do things that are world class. And I, yeah, I don't, th- I mean, there's, there's a million failures on the, on the way, but no grand failures, I don't think. Because every failure is an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. The stuff we've done wrong, done so much shit wrong. Yeah. And overstep the line a bunch of times. But if you don't have to step the line, you never know where the line is. Sure. And if, and if you don't, you know, moderate, you know, the Oscar Wilde quote, moderation is fatal, you know, nothing succeeds like excess. You know, look at surfer, surfer.com. It's just, yeah. You know, yeah. It's nothing. Well, uh, we'll come back to Beach Grit. But I want to go back to some of the timeline stab. Um, you sold early. Mm. I mean, in hindsight, you know, you sold at a time. And then years later, five, six years later, Sam sold for a reported lot of money mm-hmm. uh, to Surf Stitch. And they didn't do much with it, had a bunch of financial problems. Apparently, they sold it back to Sam. And so Sam's now in control of it. How do you feel about that? It's, fun, it's funny. Do you feel like you sold too early? No, you have emotion I mean, about it. I mean, it's like you know, if, if your auntie had balls, she'd be your uncle. You know, <laughs> but uh, it's funny because I had um, this guy ring me and goes, "Oh, have you heard? You know, da da da. You know, steps off for ten million dollars or something, whatever it was." I mean, it's, it's great because because I, I wasn't responsible for that. I didn't because I, I know the hard work that Tom and Sam did to get it to that point, uh, that level of commerciality, and to be all the meetings and stuff because they'd come to the US for six weeks at a time sit in traffic and just go to meeting after meeting after meeting. And they courted the guys from Surf Stitch, did all these things that I didn't do. I might've created the mag or co-created the mag, what do you want to call it? But I didn't do all those things that made it worth 10 million. You know, I, in hindsight, I, when I, this is a business thing that you should learn that when you're going to sell your business, work out through an expert or someone who knows this shit, how much you sell. I just went, Oh, I want X amount of dollars. And they went, sounds good. And I realized I could have had five times that. Right. But but even that you know money money is so money is so ephemeral you know that um, just goes through your fingers and but I had a lot of people kind of going are you okay about the about the sales I like, fuck I'm stoked Sam's got a young family and he's set for life and and Tom's a great guy and they they did this amazing you know put off this amazing coup 
And um, and, and I was always pretty anti um, bagging on stabbing. Um, Beach cream was something that me and Chase used to argue with a bit because it just felt like um, – because it's in my backyard, for one, and for two, I just think it's a bad look to, to trash them. But, but also, but I trust, I trust Chaz implicitly and I trust – when he goes over the over the line, in my opinion, I know there's a there's a, a benefit down the line, and also there's a couple of things happening. You know, we heard that we had we had an advertiser call up saying, "Hey, I, I can't advertise on your site anymore because they're going to pull all our stuff from Surf Stitch," and and we had um, a bunch of things like that happen. And I made a movie about Israel for Stab before I left, and it had this opening scene and it had a bit of the Holocaust and and, and the and the creation of Israel and whatever, and they cut it all. Really? Because someone, because a couple of fucking anti Semites are called and saying, fuck, you know, Israelis and Jews and da 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 da. And they panicked and cut it. Wow. And that bummed me out so much because I, because I developed a lot, you know, love for Israel and the, and how brave those people were, those fucking handful of people in the kibbutzes fighting off the seven Arab nations. And whether, you know, whether you're pro Israel or anti Israel, it did exist and the Holocaust happened. Yeah. But it cut it out of this movie and it set it, and it set up this film, which is a really cool film, it had Craig Anderson and all those guys in it. And then, um, so that, was, that kind of bummed me out. But, you know, and then when, you know, advertisers are being pressured not to, um, they, they're not the fucking chest for your life. Yeah, that, you know? that's problematic. So do you feel that in Stab's kind of commercial viability that they compromised any of the artistic or just kind of creative expression of the magazine? Was the commercial version of the magazine a lesser version than when you felt you were contributing to it? Um, well, I, I think um, media entities are purely the p- people who are operating it. Yeah. And I, th- I, I think when they were running... Um, and and the got to remember the architecture of the site, like most sites, is if they put a story up about FCS fins, it's going to have the same same um, presence on the page as um, Sonny Garcia, you know, found almost dead sort of thing, you know. So it's, so it's weighting the new set of Julian Wilson FCS fins against important stuff. So I think that kind of brought the site down a bit, but um, I, don't, I don't, certainly don't think they um, um, deliberately watered down anything. I think it's just a change of personnel, that sort of stuff. Sure. And um, so you can have both things. You can have both things, you know. And and it's and it's so cyclical too because you'll have someone who grow more confident in their job and start taking more risks, and you'll see that. So you can't have all this new personnel expect them to be have all this sort of DNA in them about the brand and about the sport and whatever. And um, and it feels like um, it's coming to a pretty good place with um, like Stab High. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And um, not not everything they pull off is is great, but but some of the stuff's really really good. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your relationship with Chaz. Um, I'll give kind of a short version, and we've told it before. I don't know if you remember it four years ago or something. I interviewed you and Chaz together, and we covered some of this. So the Encinitas Library, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> with the train going by, so we've upgraded our surroundings or our studio space. <laughs> um, but. I'll link to that episode so listeners can listen to that to get the full backstory. But essentially Chaz was writing um, freelance for Vice, I think Esquire, some other publications, and you had been a fan of his work. And so you connected with him and brought him in as a writer of Mm -hmm. At Stab. And the story that I wanted to get your take on is kind of the most famous one, which is he wrote something about Mick Fanning. What did he, he called Mick Fanning? Is that what it was? Uh, Mick I'm Fanning, sorry. Mick I'm Fanning sorry. called Chaz the fucking Jew. Mick Fanning called Chaz the fucking Jew. <laughs> yeah. And Mick Fanning's main sponsor, Rip Curl, mm. is an advertiser and stab. No, they weren't. They weren't an advertiser. Okay. So I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know uh, the details. Which we sent Chaz to the North Shore to do a North, North Shore coverage. Very traditional magazine stuff, you know, to do that to do that sort of stuff. And it ended up being, I guess, the genesis for, for Chaz's book. So it worked out there. And, and um, of the inertia, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? The inertia spun off from that. Oh, really? Because Zach wrote the article 
about what you're going to tell yeah. for Surfer. Yeah. And Surfer basically made him delete the article. Like it was on the website and they were like, no, you got to delete that. We cannot run that. It's too controversial. Yeah. And so um, Zach, as he's Jewish, yeah. he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to stand for what I know is right. Wasn't, so he, he, wasn't he pro-Mick though in, in the story? I don't. I'm pretty sure he's pro-Mick. I think either way, he yeah. was just anti <laughs> getting told what to do yeah. from Surfer Mag. And so he quit his job and that was the impetus that's, that's for the inertia. Story. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Um, Look at your influence knows no bounds. Yeah. So, um, so Chaz, so Chaz sent us, so Chaz, I thought I was just talking to Chaz on the phone. He goes, oh, yeah, he's, in his sort of goofy, funny way. Because oh, you wouldn't believe what happened last night. Mick Fanning um, fucking sort of, you know, called me a fucking Jew. And then when I was leaving the party, all these, all these goons fucking <laughs> threw me against the wall and then the gate opened and I ran away. And I said, you call me fucking Jew? And he goes, yeah. I said, oh, that's the title. I said, uh, <laughs> Tales of a Fucking Jew. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'm kind of oblivious to um, sometimes to how sensitive society can be and how, the, you know, the confected outrage. And I'm, I guess, you know, now, you know, it's a lot greater than it was in 2000 and whatever year that was, 2010 or something, nine, no, maybe less, maybe eight or something. And, um, and so when I wrote, I wasn't expecting any backlash, you know, it was just a thing the world champ had said to him, it was a funny little anecdote. And, um, and Mick living on the Gold Coast wouldn't have seen a Jewish person in his life, you know, I grew up in WA and I didn't see a Jewish person until I... And Chaz isn't Jewish. Yeah, and Chaz isn't Jewish, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and um, yeah, and so the, so the story came out and then um, I think it might have taken a while before anyone... Oh, really? Sort of picked up on it, yeah, from, from memory. But then the, um, it wasn't the Jewish Defence League, but it was something like that. They were sort of, you know, calling. And then Mick Fanning <laughs> had this funny press release saying that uh, he was being ironic because that's because Stab, Stab was anti-Semitic because the Chase did the um, fascist issue. And it's a funny story behind that too. And, um, and that he didn't – oh, no, the best story of this – the best thing about this – was when it came out, all the heat was sort of coming on, and all I was worrying about was defamation. That if he said he didn't say it, and he was a world champion, he had a case against us, and he could send us, I can really send us broke. And then uh, I can't remember how he found out, but um, uh, his mum thought that Chaz's um, phone was a voice recorder, and his mum was quoted as something saying, you know, we we if he didn't have that voice recorder or something with him or, and he didn't, he just had his phone with him and that got us off the hook. And that's why he had to admit that he said it. Cause he oh could have said, gosh. didn't say it totally made up. Wow. Yeah. And then, uh, so, so we'll save the bell then, but then, um, but a whole bunch of people pulled their ads, Hurley pulled their ads, uh, cause they were friends with Mick and, and a bunch of people. And, um, we said we'd pull the mag off the stands, but to be honest, Stab never sold on the stands anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, it was, it was one of the time, you know, <laughs> magazines, that's when I started to know the print was dead, you know, 10 years ago, I knew print was dead because you could just see it just going, just staggering. It's just like, ah, and we never, you could never really cut through unless you did something, you know. So those brands that aren't even affiliated with Mick, did they just threaten to pull their money or they actually pulled pulled the money? I think, um, because I didn't own the business then, but I think Sam probably took about a quarter of a million hit. But it set up. Loss in advertising. Yeah, but it it did set up Stab as the, Gave Stab $250,000 worth of free advertising. Right. Not free advertising, paid advertising. Sure, sure. And um, yeah, and Chaz got to write a book about it. And I think it was probably good for Mick too to um, sort of examine his behavior when he's pissed. And, you know, I could obviously Mick do some crook things. I remember once, I can't, well, I can't even tell this story, particularly in this particular climate. But, um, you know, if you said it, it'd be a headline, you know. And 
<clears throat> but he seems to be a, um, a much sort of sweeter guy now. Yeah. So what was your thought at that time? I would imagine anybody feeling that amount of pressure from their industry, their people that are bankrolling their business and all that sort of stuff would have to question how to handle that decision. What made you stick with Chaz? Oh, it wasn't even a question. Wasn't? No. Why not? Because he's good and, and it wasn't his problem, really. He submitted a story. I did the headline. It was the headline that did it. Oh, okay. You know, so, so you took responsibility. Yeah, hell yeah. And I'm the editor. It was totally my responsibility. It's nothing to do with Chaz. Was there a conflict between you and Sam at that time? Or how did Sam feel about it? Um, Sam would get pretty panicked by a lot of the stuff I'd do. Yeah. And me and Chaz would do. And, um, but, but Sam's a smart guy. He, he could see the value yeah. in the stuff we were doing as well. But I think he would rather everything. And I, I guess, I guess it's reflected in stab now. He would rather everything was just nice and calm. Sure. There's no fucking headaches. It was, just, yeah. it was just a headache, headache for him. And, um, so I think it was pretty glad when I, when I left and took Chaz with me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he, yeah, he was, it was it, Sam was cool with me and, you know, we were all cool with each other. It was just, um, one of those things you just have to sort of get through. Well, a lot's transpired since then. Um, obviously you leaving stab and then Sam selling it, Sam taking it back, all that sort of stuff. Where are you guys at now? Are you guys friendly, amicable or? I was there ever, in about three years. Is there any, ever any bad blood or are you guys? Um, because the way that it's positioned for the viewer of all of surf media yeah. is they're almost conflicting at it entities yeah. and it might just be because Chaz is the one throwing barbs constantly at stab yeah, yeah. and not directly at Sam. I'm using yeah. Sam's name because you're friends with him, but yeah. um, stab never throws any barbs back. Stab ignores it. Their policy is just kind of don't discuss did the it. Slap the bitch slap, but that wasn't company approved. <laughs> I don't think that was Ashton acting out on his own based on very personal kind of vendetta. Um, I don't it, was think like, that's, it was like Christmas Day when Chaz called me up and said that it happened. It was filmed. I filmed it. Oh, was it your film? Right, okay. Yeah, dude, I had a that's confrontation amazing. with Ashton five minutes prior. And at the end of it, he's like, I'm gonna let I'm gonna give Chaz, you know, a piece of my mind. Yeah. And I I'm friends with Chaz, obviously, but I didn't feel any need to warn Chaz. Chaz mm. knew it was coming anyways. So we were all back in our area and I saw Ashton enter the space mm. and I stopped the conversation I was having. I'm like, hey, dude, I just got to pull out my phone <laughs> to film this interaction because something's going down. And uh, sure enough, Ashton delivered the goods. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when Chaz told me, like, that's so good because it drives a week worth of stories and traffic and, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah. That's good. But anyway. Um, my relationship with Sam? Yeah, and is he bothered by the fact that Chaz is constantly throwing barbs? I think it's very, I think he's bothered by it, and I and I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me too much. But I don't, I certainly don't feel any um, animosity towards him, or and he's done nothing for me. I mean, except for getting advertisers to pull, but he's done nothing to impact on my life or make me sad or, or anything. So um, I still like him. You know, I admire him. He's done a great job, and I think um, he's he you know he's the brains behind behind stabs and none of the writers because I think. As you know, as nice as they all are, everyone's pretty disposable. But but Sam's the brains behind Stab and uh, and Tom Bird, the uh, the uh, sales guy. Yeah, you know, because Stab High, all those things, uh, Sam's ideas, or he sourced it from somebody. Because I think Stab in the Dark came from a guy from Quicksilver. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but um, but all those things, just Sam's doing, you know. And um, and it's funny when you know when he's um, sometimes he has a story in Stab. There's one recently about something, but it's really good. I think I really like enjoy his writing and. Yeah. yeah. Well, what about um, with Beach Grits specifically? What's your policy with bringing on new writers? Yeah, I mean, everyone's welcome. It's just, just purely a meritocracy. 
So yeah. how many, do you get submissions that get declined all the time? Yeah, or? all the time. Yeah. I mean, everyone thinks they're a writer and yeah, some, some people do have a natural flair for it. Yeah. And some, some people, man, like Gen C, I love Gen C stuff. It's so beautifully constructed, Yeah. you know, and, uh, and long time stuff is great. And, and surf ads is um, sort of coming on really well now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, some people get into a real cycle of, of submitting stories and whatever. And Nick Carroll will submit stories every now and again and, and, you know, get Warshaw stuff and Sam George and Matt George. And yeah. So we, we, it's become this little literary hub. Yeah, and I think uh, it has. What's your, um, how did the, be, the uh, comment section, was that part of the original kind of inception of the business? Did you ever see that becoming what it's become? No, I think Negatron has been um, a big part of that. So he was um, a comment, he's a guy from New Zealand, plumber from New Zealand. And he was, used to comment a lot on Stab, back when Stab used to get comments mm-hmm. on stories. And, um, and I think he got tired of, I guess he felt this, the side had been dumbed down a bit and wasn't, you know, whatever. And so he, he contacted me and said, you know, can I be your, um, moderator? So he came on and he created this forum that became so like he'd, he'd take, you know, he'd, um, explain to people why their comments weren't appearing and they'd do all these things and he'd shaped and he shaped this whole society where it's, um, not just people saying, you know, I hate you. No, I hate you sort of stuff. And uh, so I think Negatron really drove that. Um, was there a need for a moderator at the time? Had your comment section been kind of yeah, we had degrading? A, no, it wasn't degraded, but it wasn't, it was, it was fine. But if it was going to grow and grow in a, in a cool way, because comments can be, as I said, you know, just pointless or they can, they can just be a window into the, the greater part of that story, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have your 300 word story then you have 2000 words below just explaining the nuances and people back and forth and it's, um, yeah, you know, you get some really fine minds in there. It was a really unexpected, um, part of surf media for me. That's I enjoy now almost more than anything that I didn't see coming and I didn't see the value in and maybe Negatron's the guy who deserves yeah. the credit for kind of identifying that there was something of value there. And what it is for me is, um, when I was growing up, all of my, uh, all of my surf media would just trickle down from three sources base. Let's say three media companies and five surf brands. So everything that I got came from the top and it was like edited and curated for me. And we've gotten to a point now where that's become a little bit more broader and there's more sources that it's coming from. The comment section feels like I'm at the beach parking lot. Yeah, It's now just everybody has an opinion. Everybody can chime in. And I feel like if I'm um, disconnected from surfing as I has been, have been this last <laughs> two weeks where I'm not surfing that much and maybe I'm busy with work so I'm not even reading that much about it or watching that much about it, I can kind of go straight to the comment section and it's like straight from the vein. Yeah. It's like this is what the general populace feels about a particular heat that just went down in a surf contest or a particular ad campaign that just came out in something. But the great thing about it is you have people like Morris Cole and Nick Carroll, yeah. and all these people in there. So it's, it's a very informed audience. It's not just a beach parking lot. Right. It's like, um, it's like, maybe it's like the pipe parking lot or something. So they're all big names. Totally. You know, it's pretty, uh, totally pretty packed field. And then there was really though, the danger of it just becoming a lot of white noise. And so yeah. maybe Maurice's comment wouldn't even get seen, but thanks to Negatron, it is, it has become, not only curated, but like people now respect the curation. Yeah. So they won't just lob out some thing just to be, you know, um, yeah. obnoxious. It's funny. The, um, I jumped in a couple of weeks ago and there was some stuff that was very actionable in Australia in defamation, defamation. And I just jumped in. I was just banning people. Oh, <laughs> really? Doing just deleting shit like crazy. And next time I'm going, what the fuck are you doing? You know, cause he's got this, this ecosystem 
that he's created. And I just went in because I just think loose house, loose house, loose house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again. <laughs> so do you read every comment that comes through? Um, pretty much, pretty much. I, I definitely read the ones on the um, stream, you know, the open yeah. stream thing we do. Yeah, yeah. And that was a, that was a bitch group reader. And I, I was trying to find his email the other day too because I want to thank him because it's been so successful. And Explain said, what it is. So, you know, we have that thing where um, – so we have a contest on. So day one, Tahiti – We'll go comment live. So we'll just have a, so you just click on a story and everyone will just be commenting live down below. So there's nothing technical to it or anything. And it was from, um, I think, NFL sites, they do it. Mm-hmm. And this, this reader said, you should try and do this. And I kind of didn't really understand. And I said to James, our, our general manager, that, um, oh, we need to talk to Sean Burrell, our, our developer, to somehow do this. And then um, I just realized, oh, we can just fucking put a story and just comment down below. Yeah. And it's been massively successful. So you have this, you know, this thing, you know, that page on, Time on page, you know, and mm-hmm. analytics. It's massive. So someone could be on the page for eight hours now, not three minutes, you know. For and the entirety of the contest that's running that. Yeah, day. and you know, well, that you know, and then you have two thousand comments, which is unheard of in surfing. Right. You know, anything really, except for yeah. I think except for Breitbart. Any other site that gets lots of comments is Breitbart. Yeah. Ironically. Yeah, it's radical. You guys have done a great job with that. Um, talking about your role as like creative director, I'm wondering if do you feel like Beach Grit like is even the right platform. Like when you look at stab back in the day, you had a physical magazine that you, and also the digital presence that was this kind of complete thing. I often think about um, albums, vinyl or CDs when we were kids where you get this thing and there's liner notes and all the graphic design work is kind of imbued through it. Like you actually, it feels substantial just because of the amount of work that's gone into it. I worry sometimes that a website isn't actually quite as robust to really express the full vision. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Are you concerned? Is there ways to bulk it out? No, I don't, I don't feel it at all. It's just changing mediums, you know, like, you know, you go from, um, you know, stories around the campfire to, to radio, to television, to movies and music and CDs and whatever. Cause you know, when CDs came out, it was the end of the world, according to some people. And, um, and I think, um, you know, graphically there's, there's, there's graphic stuff on there and there could be graphics in our products because we've we got products coming up. And um, I think the whole magazine thing is, um, it's, it's, it's not the death of the magazine, just the death of um, squandering precious resources, printing that shit. Agreed. You know, and I, and I don't think the tactile nature stuff is, I mean, people talk about vinyl a lot, but it's a lot of hot, there's a lot of hot air because people talk about it, but the amount of people who actually buy vinyl and who actually have a record player, who actually use their record player, kind of one percent of the people who are on a turntable yeah. you know it's just a lot of uh it's just a talking point but i think people are quite happy staring at their phones you know it's funny spotify is introducing this new thing where um they play a music video behind the song like oh, really? there's actual moving visuals and it's not with all things and it's yeah. also not the music video that they would be putting on youtube yeah it's like a they they make one specifically and it's sized for your phone yeah so it's tall um but yeah it was like i was listening to like a jim james song and the thing started moving it caught my eye and i look <laughs> over and it's sure enough it's him singing and there's really? all the smoke yeah and i was like whoa this is radical wow and i actually was inclined to watch it yeah, yeah. it wasn't <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah but i thought it was a, a smart little pivot on yeah. their part you know yeah um and then of course they could probably embed advertising into that and that's like mm. a potential revenue stream yeah um one thing i'll criticize you're talking about being like um very cognizant of font and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Isn't the font that you guys use on Beechcrit just the default WordPress font? Oh, I mean the body copy font. Yeah, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a default font. It's one of the one of the uh, web fonts. But I think Georgia's a beautiful font. I love okay. that Sarah font, and I love. It's funny when I um, I had a computer, and for some reason I could minimize my um, 
minimize my text edit to a certain size at 75%. I had to be at 13 point and I think I was in Tahoma and I could only write in that font at that size and at that particular minimization on that particular program. And then that computer died and it didn't work on the new computers, didn't have that particular size. And then I was fucked. I couldn't write for ages and it took me so long. Now I have to write in Georgia at 14 regular. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, text yeah. edit. Um, what else other than product? What else is on the horizon for Beach Grit? Um, doing, uh, doing a few side project movies. So we've got a, um, last year we did this thing called the New, uh, New Jersey Wetsuit Fairy Tale. Yep. And we had uh, original oh, covers of Springsteen songs with, with Vaughn Blakey and, and so on. And, uh, and this year we're doing New Zealand. Once Upon a Time in New Zealand. And it's a guy called Luke Cederman. Do you know Luke from I the regular Surf Report? He's the funniest guy. So it's a time travel thing. So he um, wakes up in the morning, he's got a uh, to-do list. And one of the things is to go back to 1984. One of the things is to do a combo turn, land in air, go back to 1984 and bring some modern wetsuits with him. He goes, oh, fuck, okay. And then he, um, so he puts, he's got this spray paints his car white, puts on some bubble wrap, and then poof, he's in 1984. And that's the, that's the. Epic. Yeah. You guys have already shot it. Yeah, it's getting cut now. Jack Boston's our editor in San Francisco, and I was up there sort of working on that as well. And we got um, a guy called Paul E. B. who does all the um, sound production for that as well. And uh, one of those guys, he he did all the stuff for the Springsteen Jersey stuff. So he recorded three iconic New Zealand songs, rock songs from the eighties because it's set in the eighties. So it's got this killer soundtrack. Amazing. Yeah, it's going to be really really good. So or, this or really bad. I don't know. <laughs> there's a follow up piece or a secondary, second annual piece. Wetsuit. Yeah. Thing. So yeah. What well, you know? Yeah. One, once a year we. Sort of a year and a half since we did the last one, but and you got surfboard reviews, surfboard um, reviews, and we um, we've got a um, Philip Toledo movie in the um, sitting on the on the blocks waiting for um, Felipe to get a ten foot wave at Chopes to finish it. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's like a, a profile piece. Yeah, so it's about um, it's called to be continued, and it's about Felipe, you know, dealing with head on with the challenges of learning how to ride ledges. And he talks openly about it, and you know, talks about his zero point heat, and um, and he's so likable in it. Chaz has seen it. And um, Sam, I, got, I got Sam George to do the interviews. And it's great. It's, um, we sat him in this room and had a projection of, um, you know, Wave of Piper. He nearly came out and got, you know, got I, clipped right at the end. He would have got a 10. I missed it. A backdoor, I amazing, most amazing thing. And it's a piano, this beautiful piano score. And it's got him staring at a silhouette of him looking at this thing. And he's just talking about this wave in minutia. He nearly beat Kelly Slater, the greatest of all time at Pipeline, on this wave, you know. And he really struggled with surfing ledges, whatever. And has him going to Tahiti and... But just didn't have the hasn't got the banger wave yet, unfortunately. So he's not afraid. So he's not afraid. No, he's not afraid. But he he did grow up in you know where he grew up, and um, it has been a difficult transition for him. And he just needs to spend. And he has been spending time there. He's been there for about. He was there for about two weeks before the contest, and he went there last year for ages. And I'm not convinced. Yeah, but he's I trying. Don't think Sam did his job. I don't think Sam got honesty out of him. Oh, you should just it's pretty shit. <laughs> tell, tell them you're not afraid. Fucking just say it. <laughs> Dude, I've seen the fear in his eyes. I've seen him. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's definitely trying. He's a very likable kid. And, you know, I think he'll get there. Yeah. It is hard, but he, he isn't shirking the challenge. You know, as you saw from that one really good wave he got, you know, he's got it in him and he's got the skills. He got one. That was it. But he got one. He talked himself up to one and then he had another heat after that with Seth Moniz and he didn't go on a bunch of. I can't believe Seth Moniz was $2.50 to one. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. I don't even track that, but that makes sense. But if anyone knew anything about surfing, they wouldn't put yeah. um, no, 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 over it no. in Seth Moniz's two and a half to one. Yeah. Jesus, could have been a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. That's my stab moment. That's where I, that's where I regret every second of my life not betting on Seth Moniz in that heat. By the way, I didn't ask you, but can you say where that Metallica piece will run? 
or does if you will see it you will see it on beach grid oh okay yeah yeah okay and it's, it's gonna be really fucking cool awesome. so jack boston our guys um doing it with got some great talent on it okay cool and metallica very very welcoming amazing stories yeah. very very funny stories and 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 intense stories and yeah. whatever awesome and it's interesting those four guys you know he'd think they'd be the coolest whatever he'd be salty but i thought lars would be salty but he wasn't i thought kirk would be kind of quiet and he was just very verbose and and james is just has this most magnificent voice are you a fan of metallica um not really no 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 but the one song i like is apparently the one that all the critics hate saint anger I'd have to look it up. Yeah, it's an amazing song. I always liked it, but they said don't mention Saint Anger because it's not the critics' favorite. You know, so, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Full vowel moment. I like Larry Hamilton, Bethany, <laughs> Bethany Hamilton. I like Kelly Slater. <laughs> awesome. Well, Derek, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you. Yeah. Grit's store is now live. T-shirts, air fresheners, which are available in the Heartbreak Beach scent, traction pads, all available. The coffee mugs actually are recently sold out, but you can get it all on beachgrit.com. And then, of course, be sure to check out their latest film, Once Upon a Time in New Zealand, which Derek just told us about. Um, they review Visla's Seven Seas Wetsuit, made more eco-friendly by using limestone-based neoprene, their carbon black, which is another key ingredient in neoprene, is made from scrap rubber tires from vehicles, car tires with worn tread that can now be repurposed or pyrolyzed is the term to make wetsuits, which actually cuts the CO2 emission by 200 grams per wetsuit. And of course, Visla has a full range of clothing and accessories. And perhaps best of all, they support a team of shapers, laminators, artists. They make films, and they even support podcasters. Visla.com is where you can find all of their work, or better yet, pick up Visla everything at your local surf shop. And everything that Derek and I discussed in this episode, from Once Upon a Time in New Zealand to links to purchase Derek's books and everything else are all available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can follow his current project and writing on beachgrit.com. And further, you could support our work and this podcast by sharing it with friends. It's a super simple way to help our audience grow. And then you can also rate and review it in Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. That helps strangers to find it, and it also helps with our ranking in their respective charts. And then if you want more content, check out our other shows. I've got Spit with Scott Bass. I've got The Grit with Chas Smith. Surfboard shaper Donald Brink has his own podcast, as does Scott Bass. All of those are available on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's more than 400 episodes in total, and they're all entirely available for free to binge right now. So enjoy that. I'll be back on Friday with Chas Smith for The Grit and then back here next Wednesday for Surf Splendor. Until then, this is, of course, David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean. Share some waves and shred on. Shred on.